All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. That's where we're at tonight. I'll just start reading from verse 13 so we get the flow. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. God's told us a whole lot about our living hope. And then, therefore, <coughs> subtext, because you have all this living hope, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, tonight's text. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are awesome, terrible, your goodness and power. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us tonight to fear you more, not just as an abstract concept. Help us, God, to practically, emotionally, actionably, intellectually fear you more. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does living hope look like? Does it look like wide eyes? Does it look like dumb optimism? Does it look like being very gullible? It's not any of those things. That's not what a living hope is. Peter tells us what a living hope looks like in this section, and he says it's three things. First, it's setting our hope more fully on Jesus. Second, it's being holy as God is holy. We looked at both of those things last week. And then third, it's fearing God. That's what we're looking at tonight. Tonight's sermon is all about fearing God. So the first thing we have to do tonight is we have to make sure we understand what Peter means by fearing God, and then we'll look at four reasons that Peter gives us for why we should fear God. So, what is the fear of the Lord? And then four reasons why you should. Okay, point one, what it means to fear the Lord. If you look at our passage tonight, I want you to see that the main, a little grammar work, I want you to see that the main command there is in verse 17. It says, this is the main verb, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
little background. This is saying something about you as a Christian. It's saying that you're in exile for a time. You're in exile because Adam's sin got humanity cast out of the garden. The proof being that you're not in heaven right now. You're not only in exile, you're in exile for a time, only for a time, because your old sinful self and your alienation from God, they've died with Christ when Christ died. And so you're in exile living with hope, living with a living hope. Your, your new self has been resurrected along with Jesus, your new self as a citizen of heaven and so you have a solid hope that someday you'll, whether it's when he comes again or when you die, you'll leave the sinful world and go to live with him in glory. Be back in his presence, back in glory. So the question comes then, how should you live while you're still here? How should you live when you're in exile? Peter's answer is, you should conduct yourself with fear. So now the more important question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? The good kind of fear. First, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. Some people think fearing God means being terrified of him as punishment. They'll see God as being a large, frowning slave driver. If you don't do exactly what he wants, he's going to crack the whip. And since you can't do exactly what he wants... You're always kind of cringing, expecting another whip crack. <clears throat> Some of you have had teachers like this. Uh, they're big on authority, little on kindness. And you feared your teacher, but you didn't love them. That's not what it means to fear God. Other people think fearing God means just giving him a little respect every now and then. They see God as God's kind of a pushover. He's your yes man in the sky. He would never cross your will. So, of course, we like him and we speak well of him, but he doesn't really have much of a bite anymore. Some of us have had teachers like this. You had the pushover teacher in school. They're big on kindness and they're small on authority. You like them okay, but you never really respected them. That's not what it means to fear God either. Fearing God's something, it's a totally different species of fear. It's seeing God as having the perfect mixture of kindness and authority. And because you see in him both of these things, all this kindness, all this authority, you really want to please him. So you may have had a teacher that kind of embodied this in school. You knew you had a favorite teacher, and they were your favorite teacher because you knew they really liked you. There's that kindness. But you also respected how they used their authority. They'd give you a demerit if you deserved it. They gave you the grade you deserved. They were tough but fair, and you knew they liked you. And so you felt bad handing them garbage assignments, and you really wanted to do well on their papers and on their tests because you actually cared what they thought. That's a little good illustration of the fear of the Lord. That's how we're supposed to live before him every moment we're in exile, every moment we're on this earth, before we go into glory and, and finally realize our living hope now, kind of talking about that's what the fear of the Lord is like. Hope you have a sense of that. Now we're going to turn to add some fuel to that fire. Peter gives us four reasons why we should want to fear him this way. Four reasons to increase the fear of the Lord. 
in you. Reason number one. Here's your first reason why you should fear God. It says, you call upon him as father. If you call upon him as father, it says. Now, at the background of this first reason lies a pretty astonishing fact. And that fact is that through the bloody death of Jesus Christ and the new life of the Holy Spirit, God has adopted you. If you're a Christian, he's adopted you to be his child. His child. So you should fear God because he's your father. Because he's your perfect father. He's your perfect father again because he has in himself the perfect mixture of kindness towards you, but also authority toward you. You might have trouble at this point because you've never had a father that got that balance right. Maybe your dad was all sternness and no smiles. Maybe your dad wasn't around. Maybe your dad was all smiles and no sternness. They're actually both destructive in their own way. But it should be comforting to you to know that your God's in another category, above and beyond any fatherly example. He's a perfect father. Perfect mixture of infinite kindness towards you and infinite authority at the same time. Because on the one hand, as your father, God's been infinitely kind toward you. He set his love on you when you were a sinner, when you hated him. He provided his own son to meet your greatest need. He wants to walk with you in light every day of your eternal life. He's so kind. You should fear God because he's a kind father. On the other hand, as your father, he's also your authority. He's laid down a law for you. He has every moment of your destiny in his hands. He will discipline you as much as you need it. You should fear him because he is the absolute authority of the universe still as father. So this is the father that we're privileged to call upon, to call upon for any sorrow, for any need. This is the father we want to please. A father who's high and holy, but also really, really likes you. A father that you can hug close to your chest, but you dare not cross him. Feel that balance? So that's the first reason why we fear the Lord. The good kind of fear. We fear him because as Christians we call upon him as father. Reason number two why we fear God. It says he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And the second point reminds me of how I fear police officers. I like police officers. But whenever I'm driving down the road and I see a police car on the side of the road, I always get that <clears throat> and I slow down. Well, sometimes I speed up. Why is that? I'm sure it's because they have a certain power of judgment over me, a legitimate power of judgment. That's the second reason we fear God, because he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, I bet that that sentence might make some of you feel a little nervous. Because it doesn't sound very Protestant, does it? Judged according to works, it says. It's actually very Protestant. It's just that a lot of teachers today are very overly simplistic when they teach about faith and works. A lot of people just want to say, you're saved by faith, and then it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter at all what you do. But good Protestant teaching has always taught that 
Your works matter because your works are evidence of your faith. They show your faith. On the one hand, your works are evidence for you as to whether or not you really believe. Because how can you say you really believe in God if you never do what he says? How can you say you believe in God if you never change in anything that you do? And so your works are evidence to you that you believe you have real faith. On the other hand, they're also evidence God uses them as evidence. They're evidence to God because scriptures say that when God judges you, he will look at your works and see if they show evidence of true saving faith. So you're not saved on the ground of your works. God's not looking and saying, did you do enough good works and then I'll save you? That's not the case at all. You're saved through faith in Christ alone and on Christ's merit. But God looks at your works and holds them up as evidence of your faith being real or not. God also looks at your works, this is very important, to determine what rewards he will give you on the last day. God will look at what you have done in the body to see what rewards you'll get for eternity. It's everywhere in Scripture. That's the sense of Psalm 62.12. Psalm 62.12, For you will render to a man according to his work. It's the sense of Matthew 16.27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And I can multiply examples. So what does this mean for us? It means we need to fear God because he judges impartially according to our deeds. And so you're supposed to read something like this and you're supposed to look at your life. And you're supposed to look at your life and if, if your life is rife with sin, if you enjoy your sin, you're neck deep in your sin, and you don't do anything to fight your sin, he's saying you ought to fear the judge. You don't feel very good about a genuine work of the Spirit in your life based on the evidence of your life, then you ought not feel good about what God thinks about your life based on the evidence of your life. Paul says this to Christians. He says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Or if you look at your life and you can't identify that you're doing anything for God at all, then what kind of reward could you possibly expect? Well, to be a little more encouraging, you could go the other direction with this too. God's going to look at all your deeds. He's going to look at all your deeds. That means that everything you do for him counts. He's going to reward all of it. It also means that the more you obey him and the more you love others and draw close to him, the more assurance that you can have that he's going to see some true evidence of your faith more assurance you can have salvation we fear god because he's the impartial judge and words like these these are the policemen that god gives us to help us slow down and obey his law that's reason number two why we fear him fear him because he's our father we fear him also because he will judge impartially according to our deeds reason number three why we fear God. I'll summarize it this way. God has ransomed me at infinite cost. 
a good reason to fear God. So the third way we fear God reminds me about how, how uh, myself and my wife, Hannah, how we fear other people in our life. We both have great parents that we fear, but I'm trying to broaden this beyond just parents. I would say that Hannah fears her grandmother in this kind of way. Because her grandmother has always loved her so well. Growing up in a Navy family, Hannah moved a lot, and her grandmother's house was always like that constant home base for them there in Long Island. Uh, Hannah's grandma would always come and take Hannah and her siblings out on adventures wherever they lived. And when Hannah grew up, her grandma even helped her out with a loan for college, wanted to make sure she was well taken care of. So long story short, Hannah's grandmother gave her such precious gifts, so Hannah fears her grandmother. So that means that Hannah loves to visit her grandmother. It means that Hannah loves to show her grandmother what beautiful things have happened in our family as a result of her kindness. I'm sure that all of us have people that we fear this way. And then we need to transfer that feeling over onto God. We fear God because of the infinite price that he paid to ransom us from our futile ways. It says here that he's ransomed us from our futile ways. There's actually a lot of ways that God's ransomed. God's ransomed us from all kinds of things. Here he's talking about our old futile ways. This would have been intensely angering for people growing up in, well, practically any society. Any society that values their traditions, a Roman society, values their long, austere traditions. Peter's coming and saying, they were futile. They were pointless. Saying once upon a time, all of our, I, I'm looking at everybody here, I don't know too many people that are ethnically Jewish in our congregation. Once upon a time, all of our families followed pagan religions to their hurt. Every family has generations of evil habits that their kids get stuck in. You're probably still trying to fight your way out from generational sin. Peter says, God paid the blood of his son to ransom you from those horrors. So I want you to see there's a beautiful contrast here. God has ransomed you from generations of worthlessness with the most valuable thing in existence, the life of his son. Saying, what an excellent reason to fear God. And this would probably mean different things to different readers. If you're reading this and you're a Gentile, you might think of manumission. That's just a fancy word for freeing from slavery. Apparently, if you were a slave in ancient Rome, you could buy your freedom. You had to save your money, a lot of money. Then you'd have to pay it to the temple, letting them know about your intention. And the temple would take your money and pay your master for your freedom. So actually, when you're freed, you'd actually be considered a free man in the eyes of your master, but you'd be considered a servant of whatever God purchased your freedom. How neat is that? So any Gentile reading this, any Roman reading this, would probably be thinking along similar lines. They'd be thinking, Jesus paid an infinite price for my freedom, 
I have a category for this. I, I know of God's doing this. And so I'm his servant now. I want to serve him. That's what a Gentile reader would be thinking. A Jewish reader might read this and think something slightly different. You know that at one point the Jews needed freedom from slavery in Egypt. So God had them slaughter a Passover lamb to save them from his judgment on their enemies. God's salvation was a destroying of their enemies, kill the lamb, be saved from that destruction. The people were ransomed with a lamb. That's the price that was paid, the death of a lamb. Later on, the Jews needed freedom again, this time from exile, from the nations. And God promised in Isaiah that one day he would free them again and bring them home. Isaiah 52 says this, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. People were supposed to know that they would also be ransomed with a lamb. Isaiah 53 says, A lamb led to slaughter who opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. So any Jew reading this would probably be thinking, the Lamb of God paid the ultimate price for my freedom. And so I want to serve him. I want to fear him. I want to serve him. And you could multiply examples. All throughout the New Testament, you find out Jesus ransomed you from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, from all lawlessness. Titus 2, now from your old feudal ways of living, your old worldly ways, or your family's old worldly ways, destructive ways. The point is that we fear him and we want to please him. Not just because of what he ransomed us from, what he purchased us from, but also because he paid an exceedingly precious price for us. Not silver or gold, but the precious blood, the life of the Son of God. There's actually a flip side to this too, because this is why we also don't want to displease God. Because whenever we ignore the high price that he paid for us, and go back to enjoying our old sins. God tells us what we're really doing. Hebrews 10.29 says this. It says, we go back to our old sins, ignore Christ, ignore what he paid for us. Hebrews 10.29 says, we're trampling underfoot the Son of God, counting his blood common thing, profaning the blood of the covenant. Hebrews then goes on to say, how much worse punishment do you think is deserved by such a one? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the third reason we fear him. Because we, he paid such a high price for us. A price that we can't ignore. Cannot ignore. And that's the third reason we fear him. Because he paid such a price. Unimaginably high price. Reason number four. Maybe even my favorite reason why we fear God. I'm going to summarize it by saying, He bent heaven and earth to be with you. That's reason number four. He bent heaven and earth to be with you. For this last reason, I don't actually, I, every, I've been trying to give earthly analogies. I don't actually have an earthly analogy for this one because there's just no earthly fear like this. Because I think the end of this passage shows you the perfect marriage of God's authority and kindness in his plan of redemption. So I want you to look at verses 21 and 22 again. I want to refresh our memories before we dive in. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God knew him. 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. God manifested him. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So on the one hand, all of this is pointing at God's authority. Just look what God has done. I want you to notice that the stress in these verses, there's a lot of passive tense, I want you to notice the stress in these verses is what God the Father has done. So first, he foreknew Christ. It's not saying he just knew about Jesus ahead of time. This is an election word. It's saying he appointed Christ and Christ's salvation mission before time began. He foreknew Christ. Second, he made Christ manifest. At a certain point in time, God revealed Jesus, the Savior of the world. He manifested the Messiah. And the Messiah's finished work on the cross brought in the last days. Third, he raised Christ from the dead. God the Father exercised his power to raise his son up from the dead. He loosed death's hold on him, freeing him from all of our sin in the process. And then he gave him glory. God the Father exalted his son to the throne of his right hand, giving him the name above all names, so, brothers and sisters, these are massive displays of authority. These are infinite displays of authority on a divine scale, planning the Christ before creation, sending the Christ, the Son of God, on a mission to seek and to save the lost, raising Christ from the dead, killing death, glorifying Christ, putting him at the place of all authority in heaven, appointing him the judge of all things. All of history and all of creation swirl around what God has done by these massive displays of authority in bending all heaven and earth around his plan of redemption. So he has all authority. That's what this is showing you. He has all authority. But then on the other hand, this is pointing at God's profound kindness. Because look at this. He did all of that for you. Verse 20. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Verse 21. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I want you to wonder in awe at that for a moment. The ultimate displays of God's power and authority were all for you. They're for you. Tell me that's not humbling. You can never be worthy of such a thing. But do you see why I have no analogy for this? You're reckoning with a God who's exercised ultimate authority so that your faith and hope could be in him. That's the fourth reason we fear him. Look at that authority. Look at that love. He's bent all of heaven and earth to be with you. That's a good reason to fear him. So now I'll start to wrap this up. I'll conclude by way of application. What do we do with this? Well, what Peter's been doing in these verses, now that he's told you all about your living hope in the whole first part of 1 Peter, now he's been making a case for you for why you should fear God. That's what I've been trying to do, too, trying to draw that out, show you Peter's case. 
So Christians, why should you want to please him? Why should you want to do the things that please him when you get home? Kids, why should you want to brush your teeth and go to bed like your parents ask? You're welcome, parents. When you get up in the morning, why should you want to wake up a little earlier and spend some time with him? Why should you want to do your best at work? Why should you want to do your best at school? Why should you want to go out of your way for other people when no one else is even going to know or care? Because God has made himself your father. Because God has paid an infinite price for your freedom. That's why. Or Christians, why should you be so concerned that you don't do things that displease him? Is it because he's going to smite at thee? Not ultimately. Why should you be careful what you swipe on your phone? Why should you talk kindly to your spouse when they're annoying you? Why should you drive safely and considerately when you can get away with all kinds of stuff in Charlotte, apparently? It's because God is your judge. It's because he's exercised all heavenly authority to make sure that your faith and hope are in him. This is why you're to conduct yourself with fear throughout this remaining time of your exile. It's because of the infinite kindness and authority of your God which has all been applied towards your good. Amen. Let's pray. So our Father, we are privileged to call upon you. as We don't even know. Privileged isn't even a close enough word to describe what we are. To be able to call on you, holy God, as Father. I even feel, how can I even address you except through the shed blood of your Son and the intercession of your Spirit and, and you love us so. So Lord, we come before you and thank you. All you've done, all that you are. And we do fear you, not like we ought. We confess that. We ask you, O oh Lord, uh, bring this home to roost in our hearts. <clears throat> May this make us change how we live. May we fear you like you would have us fear you. And use that to bring about that change in our lives that we need to see. Comfort us, Lord, when we see this fear. Rightly in operation. Only we need your help. We need your help. Give us faith. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.